Peace Corps gives us a chance to show a side of our country which is too often submerged. Our desire to live in peace, our desire to be of help. There can be no greater service to our country and no source of pride more real than to be a member of the Peace Corps of the United States. Hello, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. I'm your host, Tyler Lloyd, and I'm here to help tell the stories of current and returned Peace Corps volunteers. If you like what you hear today, be sure to connect with me over on Instagram at My Peace Corps Story, on Facebook by searching for My Peace Corps Story, and as always, over at MyPeaceCorpsStory.com. If you've been listening, 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 listening to the show and enjoying it, uh, head on over to Apple Podcast and leave a review for the show. Five star reviews are extremely appreciated. But more than anything, I want to know what you think so I can better serve my audience. If you are a current or return Peace Corps volunteer and want to share your story or nominate someone to share their story over on the uh, My Peace Corps Story website, uh, head on over there and click share your story. Drop me a line. You can also reach out to me via Instagram and let me know a little bit about yourself. I would love to have you on the show. Speaking of having people on the show, this week I talk with Bryn Mooser, who went from being a Peace Corps volunteer to an Emmy winning filmmaker. I had a blast talking to Brent about his Peace Corps service in the Gambia, a West African country, so I saw some similarities in my service as we were talking, and then his career after the Peace Corps, how he went back home to LA, started working on uh, a, a TV show set, and then got involved in Haiti after the, the earthquake and disasters there, and just how he transformed all that into an amazing career. You guys will enjoy his interview, so without further ado... This is the My Peace Corps Story podcast. This is this is this is this is my my Peace Corps Peace Corps my Peace Corps my Peace Corps story story story. I'm Bryn Mooser, and this is my Peace Corps story. Hey, Bryn, how are you doing? I'm good. How are you? I'm I'm really excited to to be talking with you. I'm excited to talk to you, and uh, a little. I don't know, like shell shocked or you you have produced so much amazing content that is well, well beyond the realms of my podcast that has been largely produced in, in, in living rooms and on couches. Uh, You are a master of content creation. So it's a little humbling to, to have you on the show to, to speak with me. Oh, I'm, I, I, I'm flattered. You would say that. Thank you. I've been, um, you know, working on it for a long time. It's my, you know, telling these kind of stories is my passion. Uh, making films is my passion. And, and I'm even going to get into doing some podcasting now too. So I'll, I'll be learning from you. You, I think are the master in this conversation. <laughs> well, if you have uh, any, any questions, we can connect offline. You probably have uh, contacts with people who are way more skilled than me, but I've definitely made every mistake you can imagine in trying to figure <laughs> this out. Well, I'll hit you up. I'll hit you up. Thanks for really talking to me. I'm, I'm I'm really thrilled to be here. Yeah. Well, start off by letting everybody know a little bit about yourself. Who is Bryn? Uh, just set the stage of, of, of who you are before we dive into your Peace Corps service, which was in the Gambia. Yeah, sure. Um, so um, I'm Bryn. I was born in Los Angeles, uh, which is where I currently am right now. I moved around a lot when I was a kid. So um, we, we left Los Angeles. I moved to New York City 
my mom was at Columbia University and, um, and uh, she was a, a graduate student there who had kids. So we moved into kind of the married student housing apartment building, um, which at a young age, I think, got me a taste of kind of a multicultural life. We were living mm-hmm. in Spanish Harlem at the time, and the apartment building was filled with uh, every apartment was kind of a different family from a different country. And so all my friends growing up when I was in New York were all from all over the world. And, you know, you'd go over to their apartment. Each one would have a different type of food. It would smell different. It would be a different kind of music. And so I think that that really um, inspired me about how just extraordinary the world was, how, how, how exciting it was, how beautiful it was, how many different foods and music and all those things and languages there were. Um, and so when, um, when I left New York, I moved to Maine. Uh, my mom then got um, awarded a Fulbright scholarship and we moved to Zimbabwe when I was 16. So really my first time in sub-Saharan Africa was when I was 16 and 17. I lived in Zimbabwe and, uh, and I really loved it. Came home, uh, went to, to school. I studied music. I studied film. Um, and when I got out, um, you know, what I really wanted to do was get back to Zimbabwe. Um, and, you know, I talked to some friends and some friends of friends and they said, Hey, you know, have you ever considered the Peace Corps? And so I started to study about the Peace Corps and, um, and really my idea was, was, was a, a pretty simple idea. I was like, okay, I'm going to try this thing, Peace Corps. And, uh, I'll go to Zimbabwe because I spoke already. It spoke Shona, the local language. Um, and then I'll just kind of try it out. If I don't like it, I'll just kind of stay around in Zimbabwe. Um, and so I started doing the application process. Um, and it was an exciting time. And, uh, I didn't end up in Zimbabwe. I, I ended up in the Gambia. And, uh, that's really how I got to the Peace Corps, um, from the beginning. But, but really it was a, a, a I think a, a childhood full of exposure to a lot of different cultures um, and led me to know that I wanted to, to explore that and to spend some time there. Mm-hmm. And so surprising that not only did you speak a, a foreign language, you spoke a local language of Zambia because you always hear volunteers, oh, I was fluent in Spanish, and then they end up in <laughs> sub-Saharan Africa. You knew a local <laughs> language and it still yeah. wasn't good enough. You were you still ended up in Africa, but you didn't even yeah. didn't even make your way into Zambia with local language. Yeah, well, it was actually it was actually Zimbabwe, and um, I I you know it's funny I did make it to Zimbabwe. So when mm-hmm. I went and did my um, interview, it was really kind of a crazy story. When I went, when I went to do my interview, uh, the woman who was interviewing me had a Shona mud cloth uh, behind <laughs> her from Zimbabwe. And, uh, I just met her. She, she didn't really know anything about me. I just met her and I greeted her in Shona. Uh, you know, I said, Mangwanani, which, you know, means good morning. And she said, wait, what, you know, how do you speak Shona? I said, well, I lived in Zimbabwe. And she said, I did my Peace Corps service in Zimbabwe. Um, but they had closed the program in Zimbabwe. So it was, mm. the, the program had been closed. So, uh, I, I think I would have gone to Zimbabwe, but, um, uh, instead they, they had said, look, there's openings, uh, in, Haiti, uh, Gambia, and Bolivia. Um, and I had had a friend who was a musician. I was a musician, or I am a musician, but I had a friend who was a musician. He was a drummer, and he loved um, the music of Senegal and the Gambia, especially drumming. So that was my only exposure to it. So I called him, and I said, he had been to the Gambia. And I said, hey, what do you think? And he goes, man, I, I love it there. You got to go. So it was really my decision to go to the Gambia at that point. And I, I, I think the interesting thing is... Um, I ended up in Haiti 
after the earthquake. I lived in Haiti for almost three years after the earthquake. So I ended up in Haiti after all, but I almost did my Peace Corps service there. Uh, so I, I guess I was meant to be drawn to Haiti at some point. Um, but, you know, didn't know much about the Gambia other than they had great music. And a friend of mine had been there. And that's, um, that was really enough for me to sign up and, and head out. Mm-hmm. And you have a background in jazz, right? Yeah, I was, um, you know, I think when I was in high school and elementary school, I studied music. I played in the jazz band. Um, I play, I, I practiced really hard. So I was, um, I excelled in, in, in jazz in high school. Um, and my plan was always to kind of go to music school. And I really had thought, um, that I was going to be a professional jazz musician. Um, when I went off to the Peace Corps, it was going to be like a little break. And then I'd go back and, and, and keep on that drive of being a professional jazz musician, which I didn't end up being, thank God. But I think the Peace Corps steered me away from that. Mm-hmm. Were you able to see any of the local jazz shows? Because I know Senegal has a decent amount of jazz. I'm assuming Gambia does as well, since it's encapsulated by Senegal. Yeah, you know, Gambia does it. Senegal and Gambia are so different, right? You know, Senegal, of course, is Francophone. Um, and, and, and Gambia's Anglophone. And, and there was just so much more that the French had sort of, um, developed in Senegal that didn't really get developed in Gambia. So the Gambia, you find incredible local music. Um, mm-hmm. you know, they play the Kora there, which is, you know, that giant gourd with all the strings. And mm-hmm. there's amazing musicians like Jelly Bacuyate. Um, and in, in Senegal, you have kind of more of the French influence. So, there's terrific jazz festival, like you mentioned in San Luis. Um, and then you have musicians like Yusundor and Baba Mall, um, who, who I was fans of, I, you know, everybody loved Yusundor after, um, after the work he did with Peter Gabriel. So that stuff you really see in Senegal, but the Gambian music is definitely much more local and much more traditional, um, which is still very exciting because that ultimately is the roots of jazz. Right. And so mm-hmm. you're actually, um, you know, it may not be jazz as we know it, but really it's roots. So, you're, you're learning things about syncopation and rhythms and uh, different things like that, that that really were rooted and came from um, uh, West Africa and actually the Gambia in particular, because the Gambian River was actually a, a main port of the slave trade. So the island of Georgetown or John Jamburi um, is very, very close to where Alex Haley's um, village in, in, in Roots was. So there's a, a, a big um, uh, connection between uh, the music of the Americas and, of course, the music of the Gambia. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I spend a lot of time. I'm a horrible musician, but I spend a lot of time with musicians during my service in Burkina Faso, similar instruments mm-hmm. uh, and styles. So I, that's a lot of my favorite memories were, were jamming with them and, and just watching them yeah. play. <laughs> Incredible. Incredible. Well, when you landed in the Gambia, what was your assignment? What were you going to be doing as a Peace Corps volunteer? Yeah, I, I landed. It was interesting. I mean, I guess, you know, you talk to so many volunteers, so I would wonder if this experience was similar, but I didn't know what really I was going to do. I had thought that I had signed up for um, fish farming. <laughs> I signed up for farming. I said, you know, look, I, I didn't have any skills medical skills. I didn't, you know, I hadn't really taught before. Uh, so, you know, I had agriculture experience cause I had done landscaping work as a kid. I had, you know, always had a garden growing up. So like I had some landscaping 
experience, which led me to think that I could do some agricultural work. Um, and I was interested in fish farming and I had kind of had a little bit of experience with that. Um, so I thought I was going there to do fish farming. And in fact, I showed up at the, uh, at the training site, which was a kind of tourist lodge in the middle of the Gambia. And there was a swimming pool. And I said to one of the local guys who was with the Peace Corps, I said, is this where we train to do fish farming? And he said, <laughs> he said, what are you talking about? I said, you know, fish farming, I'm new. I'm going to, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm doing fish farming here. He said, we don't do fish farming here in the Gambia. Like, I don't know what you're talking about. He started laughing. And then I realized my mistake and, you know, that it was actually just the swimming pool where we would all end up later. But um, <laughs> uh, so I, I went and did agriculture there. Um, and really my assignment was kind of, um, you know, composting, uh, different mm -hmm. ways of gardening for fruit trees, uh, grafting, you know, I think all of the kind of standard um, um, uh, West African uh, agricultural techniques. Um, and, you know, it was a lot about organizing local garden communities, community gardens, women's collectives, et cetera, um, some seed banking and even some reforestation. Gambia, like much of West Africa, uh, has been severely deforested. So there was a really big initiative at the time between the Peace Corps, uh, Germany and the, and the Gambia to reforest a lot of the land that had been deforested for charcoal um, uh, and other things. Mm -hmm. And what language did you speak? You said it was a English speaking country, but did you learn a, a now a second local African dialect while you were there? Yeah. So my, um, my village was a Mandinka village. So I studied Mandinka in the Gambia. There's three languages. There's Mandinka, there's uh, Fulani and there's Wolof. Those are kind of the three primary languages. So Peace Corps volunteers speak, um, those three languages, depending on which tribe um, you end up in. So uh, for me, it was uh, Mandinka. You know, you spent two and a half months um, at a training site in country uh, in this case. So I went, I arrived there in 2001. Um, God, it seems like a long time ago. Um, and it's interesting, actually, when I, when I arrived there, um, it was, I was supposed to leave at the beginning of September, 2001, the middle of September, 2001. And then when the attacks of 9-11 happened, they pushed um, my uh, departure date back. So during that time, uh, right after 9-11, I think a lot of the Peace Corps was trying to examine what they would do in countries that were Muslim majority. You know, it was just mm -hmm. such an uncertain time. And the Gambia is, is, is one of the most uh, highly concentrated Muslim countries in, in, in West Africa. Um, and so we pushed it back about a month and I finally arrived in the Gambia in probably October, 2001, spent almost three months at the training site, really, uh, learning about local agriculture, local farming, um, and learning Mandinka. Um, and of course, you know, any, anything that I was, any intrepidation that I felt in the days after 9-11 about, oh my God, I'm going to a Muslim country, what's it going to be like, um, were washed away immediately when I arrived in the village in the Gambia because it was the most peaceful, you know, wonderful place uh, mm -hmm. I'd ever been. And so far from any of the kind of, I think, fears that I had in my mind in those days after 9-11, thinking, oh, are people, are, are we at war? Um, and um, so it was a very dynamic time, I think, to, to be out at, in, in West Africa and out of the country. Mm-hmm. 
And once you got to your site, you said you know you got to village. What was your village like? Were these mud huts, no running water, no electricity? Yeah, it was all, all of those things. I was in the village of Sarasophie, it was called, which had about probably three or four hundred people. A little village on the edge of the Gambian River. The Gambia, if you can picture it, um, is a very skinny, skinny country. It goes about 300 kilometers uh, from tip to tip, but at its widest, it's only about 50 kilometers. So it really follows the uh, the banks of the Gambian River. Um, and it was, you know, originally, I think the history of the Gambia was it was all a French colony, but the British took it over to end the slave trade. So they really just captured the land around uh, the Gambian River so they could take control. So it's, you know, one of those classic uh, examples, um, tragic examples of, of colonialism where the maps mm-hmm. were kind of drawn very far away, um, you know, based on a map somewhere probably, um, you know, in the UK. Uh, but but that's what the country looks like. So a lot of the villages um, are on, on the river. And Sophie was was no exception. It was a beautiful little village of mud huts, um, and uh, right on the on the river, no no running water, no electricity, no solar then, uh, and in 2001, no cell phone service. Um, so it was a very different experience, I think, than Peace Corps uh, volunteers have now. Mm-hmm. I feel like also I was the last of the of of that Peace Corps. Um, class. And, you know, I don't know about what your experience was. I'd be interested about it, but really um, towards the end of my service, I got a cell phone so I could receive text messages in the village. Only if I stood and climbed on top of a big termite hill outside Mm -hmm. of the village, could I actually get those uh, text messages, but I started to get text messages. So that changed. And I, I, I do think that, you know, I was probably one of the last kind of groups of Peace Corps volunteers to have the experience of really being in your village um, with 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 no outside contact um, other than occasional mail truck that came in. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I was one of the first groups where not only did I have a cell phone, I had a cell phone that was my Peace Corps number, but I had a second cell phone which was a smartphone that I had. Wow. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. I still, I, I still had, I still had to stand under certain mango trees to be able to get a signal to to send off a message. So it wasn't as connected as I am here in the United States. But I was that first group that was starting to have not uh, cell phones but smartphones. Yeah, I mean it, that's it, that's really crazy to me. I, I so much would have changed. I didn't even have a digital camera. I mean, it was we we, we only had a film camera. So mm-hmm. I have very few pictures of my time in the Peace Corps. I mean, I have some, uh, but not kind of like a camera roll on my phone full of pictures, which I think would have been very interesting. And I have no video from it um, at all. Uh, so it was a really different time. There was a Peace Corps, um, a regional Peace Corps house that was about 40 kilometers from my village. And that had intermittent dial up uh, uh, internet so you could send off some emails. So every once about once a month, I'd be able to kind of check my email, but email was also in its early days, even, you know, during 2001, it was an interesting time to be there. Mm -hmm. Uh, Very. And I've, I've talked to volunteers who have served 
in all decades of the Peace Corps and and seeing the progression from volunteers who served in those early decades that maybe received a package, had one phone call on Christmas to their family, and that was their only connection for the whole two years, never went back to now where you're in constant contact no matter where you are. And they, I don't know, I feel that there's a sense for the nostalgia for the old way, but both still have their their problems. Oh, yeah. I mean, I we we got mail once a month, but that's probably similar even still. But mm-hmm. there was a mail truck that delivered the mail once a month into my village. So that was always an exciting time when the Peace Corps would show up with my mail. Uh, but, you know, I loved being that isolated uh, from from home. And my my family had a rule, which was no, no news is good news, right? And um, mm-hmm. they were very, looking back on it, they were very, I feel like very brave um, to be, uh, you know, so I think strong to let me go there and also to have the faith that I was okay. And so if, if, if they didn't get a call, then they knew that I was safe. Um, and I would probably get a chance to call them, you know, every other month or something like that. So it would be every once in a while. There was a phone in the regional um, house, but I had no money, you know, so it was, it was actually really difficult to make a, a, a long distance call. Mm-hmm. Um, but sometimes when I would get sort of lonely or miss home, but I couldn't reach out, I didn't have the money to reach out to my family, I would call the international collect number, which was one 800 something like that. And you would basically get an operator in America. It was a free call, it was a toll-free call that you could make. And I, w- I would do this from time to time where I would call that number. Somebody would answer the phone in America. They'd say, hello, you know, how can I help you? And I would say, don't hang up the phone. I'm a Peace Corps volunteer. I'm in West Africa. I'm just kind of homesick. Could we talk for a little while? And, and then most of the time they'd say, yeah, hey, how are you? And I'd ask them about um, movies they had seen in the movie theater, uh, music that had come out anything interesting. And I just try to talk with them for as long as they would want to talk with me. And it was really, um, I really remember that as a, as a, as a way that I could connect for free, uh, just to hear somebody from home, uh, talking about normal things. Wow. That is, that is absolutely amazing. And <laughs> yeah, cause we, cause we had it in Burkina Faso because we all had cell phones. There was this plan that was worked out with the cell phone provider that we could call any other Peace Corps volunteer for free at any time. Wow. Yeah. I rarely, oh I rarely, gosh. I rarely saw other volunteers when I was in my village. The closest one was an right. hour and a half bike, bike ride away, but you could always yeah. pick, pick up the phone. Well, I'll tell you what, uh, you know, speaking of that, the, the, I was very lucky as a Peace Corps volunteer because I had, uh, three friends who came into, um, we all started in the, the same time. I mean, we weren't friends when we came to the Peace Corps, but we became very close friends during training. Um, and these three guys lived, just like you were saying, about an hour or so bike ride to this regional house. The regional house was in Bonsong. Mm-hmm. And they were my, you know, closest friends and, and, and my best friends. I mean, you know, you know, and anybody else who's been in the Peace Corps who's listening knows that the friends that you make in the Peace Corps um, you know, which is probably just like the friends that you make in the army when you're in service are, 
are some of your deepest, you know, kind of friendships and bonds that you have because you're going through something really amazing, extraordinary, difficult, challenging, uh, and something that ultimately people really don't understand who haven't done it. Mm -hmm. Um, And so I was lucky enough to have these guys, you know, I love who were um, only about an hour bike ride. So we would get a chance to meet about once a month at Mm -hmm. this house in Bonsong that had this phone and that, that house had electricity that would come on for like two hours at night. And we would organize, um, when we would see each other, we'd say, okay, guys, let's go back to our village. Let's meet back here, you know, in one month on this day, see you then. And you would have to remember that you were all (laughs) going to meet back at that house at that time. And it was like, there was never, I mean, I think about this all the time. There was, there was no opportunity to text and say, Hey dudes, are you coming to the house? It was just like on that day, a month from whenever we last saw it, everybody would be at the house. It was amazing. You know, we forget about that. That's how people used to kind of organize, but that's how we did it. And I think if it wasn't for, um, those guys and being able to see them once a month like that, my service probably would have been more challenging just because I, you know, they, seeing them provided me with a lot of comfort, um, mm-hmm. and camaraderie. Yeah. It, there, there's no one like another fellow Peace Corps volunteer who served with you. They can understand everything that you went through. And those bonds are something, as you said, very much as I would assume, like someone that you served in the army together, that there's just no one else that, that gets you quite as well as a, a fellow Peace Corps volunteer that you served with. Yeah. And I mean, you have people who, um, you can say things to like, man, I'm having a hard time or, Oh my God, I had the best time or, mm-hmm. you know, the, the, the garden that I grew, it's working or the garden that I grew is failing. And you mm-hmm. have people who are there to go me too, or, you know, that's crazy. Have you thought about this? And so, um, I'm grateful for those guys, Billy, Carl, and Sean, I'm grateful for them because they, um, they really made it my Peace Corps experience, you know, you know, two and a half of the greatest years of my life. Um, and, you know, I think it would have been a little more challenging if I, if I hadn't had them so close. Mm-hmm. Looking back, do you have a, a favorite Peace Corps memory or story? Maybe it was something in village with your community or meeting up at that house with, with fellow volunteers, a story that you like to look back on that is, Either maybe it's just wild and out there as many Peace Corps experiences are or something that was culturally significant, something that you just really enjoy reflecting on. Yeah, look, I mean, I'll tell you, it's, it's different. It's different things. You know, like I'll, I'll tell you a couple. Um, we had an amazing group of friends, like I was saying, and, and, and Sean and Carl and, and, and Billy, um, uh, you know, we had incredible adventures, um, uh, that are as wild, uh, also dangerous. Please, anybody listening, don't do what we did. Um, incredible, exciting. Um, um, and we were able to see each other once a month. We, we built a little, um, a cabin on a piece of land that a friend, a local friend of ours gave us on the river that we called the hunting lodge. And it was just a little kind of really cool hut. Um, we, um, would go out there and fish. We had a dugout canoe. And so those memories, um, I remember were just some of the greatest memories of my life. We'd go out to that hunting lodge and, you know, we'd be in our swim trunks 
you know, and we'd, we'd spend, you know, three days without ever putting on shoes, um, and just run around like Lord of the flies. Those days were amazing. Um, those times were really incredible. And then I remember times in my village where, uh, my best friend who I'm still very close with, uh, uh, Muhammadu Jarjusi, uh, him and I would just sit at the end of the day. He was a teacher at the school. Him and I would just sit at the end of the day on this little, what they call a bantaba, which is kind of like, you know, an open gazebo under a big neem tree and listen to his little shortwave radio, play local, you know, prayers or music or whatever. Uh, and we would just drink a tayo, which is like a local black, or it's like a local black tea um, mm-hmm. and look up at the stars. And, you know, the village would, you know, had a little fire going and the village would come in and out and friends would come by and, you know, I'd fall in and out of sleep. And those moments when I think about lying under on that bantaba on a little mat um, are some of the most like comforting, beautiful, relaxing, peaceful um, moments that I know, you know, it's just, just, just seeing millions and millions of stars um, watching satellites move by, um, you know, those are really special. I remember on Thursdays, um, you know, we had a little shortwave radio we'd be able to listen to Rick D's in the weekly top 40. I mean, like, this is how isolated we were. It was like the only thing message that I would get from, from the West was like one hour of programming on Gambian radio would be a local top 40 radio. Um, and it was at Thursday at eight o'clock. And so that was our thing on Thursdays mm-hmm. at eight. It was like, it was like our appointment radio listening. We'd sit under there. I'd go buy some, you know, extra attire, like more sugar, whatever. And we would just sit and listen for an hour of radio. And I remember every Thursday at eight, probably like eight thirty, a plane would fly over super high. I mean, like at 30,000 feet, probably flying from like Dubai to London or something. And I would just wait. I'd be listening to the music and I would wait and wait for that plane. Cause it was always on schedule. And I'd look at that plane up there and just dream about traveling, taking a trip, you know, I would think about what that plane must be like inside. What kind of food are they serving in the plane? You know, it's like all, I just, those memories of kind of daydreaming um, on that mat, I think are some of the most beautiful memories that I have. Um, and, and that's what I miss a lot. You know, I, it's, it's very hard to sit still, um, to be quiet here back in America. And uh, I spent a lot of time being really quiet and reading um, and just being around the community. And I'm, I miss that. Mm-hmm. I had a, a lot of similar experiences. And for me, when I initially arrived, I struggled with the quiet being, being in the United States kind of constantly stimulated. I also came when there was the time of the smartphone when I, when I landed in Burkina Faso. Did you have any of that struggle where there could be a, a conversation seated on a mat? And then the person you're talking with could kind of actually just fall asleep and you're, you're just expected to, you just hang out and you just sit there and you just enjoy being with other people. And it doesn't have to be an activity. It doesn't have to be a conversation. You're just there and you're present. Did, did you have a difficulty with that or was that something that you eased right into? Oh my God. It's my, it's the best. <laughs> I mean, I think, I think I think our brains were different then, if if I might be so dramatic. I mean, no, yeah, I have a I hard agree. time now sitting still. So 
Um, this morning I went to my favorite coffee shop and I got a coffee and I was just going on my phone and doing emails. And, uh, I put my phone down for a minute cause I said, God, I'm, this is a really pretty scene. Why am I on, on my phone? And I picked it up right away. And it was just like a little thing that I thought of this morning of, of man, it's hard for me to sit still. So it's funny to talk about it. I, I, I think we've just changed in that. I, there was no, there was nothing else you could do. Mm-hmm. Right. You, 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 I had a lot of books. I read a ton of books. Um, and I talked to people and sat under the tree and it was hot. I mean, you remember, mm-hmm. so if it's during the day, it's too hot in your room. So you're not going to be in your mud hut. I don't know if you were in a hut or not, but I had a mud hut. So it's not going to be in my mud hut. You'd have to be outside. And, um, so there's a lot of downtime. And I came to just love, love, love that. And I, I wish I could find a way to get some of that back. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. No, I, I've, I have definitely struggled with when I reflect back on all the things that I loved about my Peace Corps service and my time there, the, the being just present with people and the pace of life and that every day my only goal was to try to improve something just a little bit. And it could be simply as having a conversation with someone and that, that was enough. Like I miss that so much and and it's so hard to try to recreate that in modern everyday life here in the United States. Yeah. Yeah, that's for sure. And I, I, you know, I haven't been back to the Gambia in about seven years. So it, I'm, I'm planning a trip that in the next couple months, but I, I, I will be interested to find out how much that connectivity has changed uh, that village. Cause we were a pretty remote village, uh, mm-hmm. but I'm sure now most people in that village have a smartphone. Yeah. Well, transitioning from your Peace Corps service, you were at, at the end of your Peace Corps service did you know what was next? Did you have a clue? You said you had gone into the Peace Corps with this idea that you were going to be a musician. Peace Corps would be this opportunity to to travel, to see a little bit of the world, but then ultimately you were going to be a musician. What was after Peace Corps? Yeah. Um, I came back to Los Angeles after the Peace Corps, and I was fully ready for a break. Uh, from development work. And uh, a lot of my friends, those guys, Billy and Sean and Carl, they they all ended up going straight into the UN and UNICEF, USAID. So they're all still in development um, and loving it and still overseas, you know, from Zambia or Rwanda or all these places. But for me, I wanted to go um, back and, and, and pursue kind of what um, another love of mine, which was filmmaking, so I came back to Los Angeles and I got a job right away working on a TV show called NYPD Blue. This was probably now in 2005. Mm-hmm. Um, and I worked for this um, incredible television producer, Stephen Bochco, who was one of the great TV producers. Uh, I had no experience uh, being on a set of a television show. And when I went in to see Stephen, because uh, um, a friend of mine had the job and he left. And so a position opened up and I kind of went in there and I said, hey, I'm interested in this job. And he said, well, you know, you have no experience. And I said, well, I've just come from the Peace Corps. And he said, well, if you can survive the jungles of the Peace Corps, then you can survive the jungles of Hollywood. Uh, you're <laughs> hired. And he hired me. And, um, but, you know, I think he hired me because he knew I just came out of the Peace Corps. That job was amazing. It taught me how to work really hard in the entertainment industry. Um, it taught me, um, you know, what production really looks like. 
Uh, and it kind of put me on the path of knowing that I wanted to make movies and make entertainment. Um, and so during that time, I actually had sort of developed a, a very interesting skill that not a lot of people had, which is because of my time in Africa, I knew a lot about development work. I knew a lot about the NGO world. I had a lot of friends who were my Peace Corps friends who are now in different NGOs and, um, you know, or UN agencies. And I knew because I was born in Los Angeles, I knew a lot of people who ended up um, becoming what we now call influencers. So a lot of friends that I had known growing up in LA became actors. Um, and so when I came back into LA, I plugged into a, some old friends and many of whom um, were actors or connected to actors. So I had this weird skill, which is I knew about development, international development, and I knew a lot of celebrities. And so I started to just on the side, kind of put connect celebrities with nonprofits. So back then in 2005, six, seven, before Twitter, uh, nonprofits would want a celebrity to be involved so they could show up at their fundraiser and it would help them raise money. Uh, mm -hmm. Now you want a celebrity involved so they can tweet about the organization and help you raise money that way. But then mm -hmm. it was about showing up at, at events. So nonprofits would come to me and say, we're doing an event for this dog shelter. We want to get a celebrity. Who do you know? And I go, oh, you know, uh, my friend uh, Kate Hudson is into that. Let me call her. And, you know, so sort of put, started putting these pieces together. Um, and it was through that that I um, met a director named Paul Haggis, a group of friends, Maria Bello, Josh Brolin, Susan Sarandon, and they were all working in Haiti. And so I went down to Haiti in 2008 um, and started getting involved in an organization called Artists for Peace and Justice. Um, came home, would help them raise some money. But really when the earthquake happened in 2010, uh, I had an opportunity to move to Port-au-Prince, Haiti and run the program on the ground. And it's interesting because when, when that organization was formed, uh, the, the guy who was in charge of it had said, um, Hey, we're going to run this organization. I said, well, I'd like to go run it. And he said, well, you, you know, somebody else said, well, I don't think he's had any experience running a nonprofit. And this guy said, you know, Bryn was in the Peace Corps. Any Peace Corps volunteer I've ever met can do anything in the world. This is our guy. And so um, it was the second time that the Peace Corps, I think, gave me, um, you know, uh, the go ahead to, to, to get a job. So I moved to Haiti um, and actually it was kind of like my second Peace Corps experience. I lived mm -hmm. in a tent uh, behind a children's hospital. I was helping to, at that point, start to build the foundation of what became the Academy for Peace and Justice, which is one of the largest secondary schools in Haiti. There's 3,000 kids that go there. Um, and uh, it was a very similar Peace Corps experience because, you know, I was in a, in a tent that didn't really have power. Uh, there was no hot water. There was cold water showers. Um, it was pretty r rustic. Then I had a motorcycle. So it was one step up from the bicycle I had in the Peace Corps. Um, but, you know, I didn't, I also didn't make a lot of money there. So it felt back to my roots. Um, and my time in Haiti was extraordinary. You know, a lot of the lessons that I had learned in the Peace Corps really came in handy in Haiti um, about, you know, the questions and the answers that I learned about, you know, um, what is impact? How do you make a difference? What does a difference look like? Um, how do you get over failure? Um, how do you, how do you, you know, get resilient enough to bounce back when you're having a hard time? All of those things, I think the lessons that I learned in the Peace Corps really came in handy in Haiti after the earthquake. Um, mm -hmm. And it was in Haiti that I started my company, Riot, um, 
which was a media company that connected uh, uh, articles, news articles to action, um, which was really kind of also based on Peace Corps ideals of how do you um, how do you get people to care about what's happening in the world? Mm-hmm. I mean, and... I always, you know, for, for me, it was always, I used to think a lot about the three tenets of the Peace Corps, you know, as they were originally envisioned. Um, you know, I'll, I'll remind anybody who's listening, you know, the first one I think is help help a community somewhere, right? The second one is teach, teach them about um, America and who we are as a culture. And the third one is bring that story home. Am I mm-hmm. right about that? That is it. Yeah. And, and, and the third one for me was the most important, right? Which was how do we, um, how do we take these lessons that we've learned, um, and bring them home here? How do you help people understand, um, uh, the realities of what's happening in the world? Cause it's different than you see in the media. I think my, you know, my story is a good example of that, which is the days after nine 11 to go off to a predominantly Muslim country, um, and to get on the ground and be scared when I arrive. But the second I get there, I go, Oh my God, this is, this isn't scary. These guys are cool. They love playing soccer. And like, they also listen to Britney Spears and whatever else was happening at the time. Like, you know, and I, I I think bringing that story home um, is the greatest lesson that you learn in the Peace Corps. And so that was the, the real foundation of building my company riot, which was, the stories that I was lucky enough to see on the ground, whether it was in Haiti or Zimbabwe or Gambia or wherever, and I spent a lot of time traveling throughout Africa, um, the stories that I was seeing were not being represented in, on the, in the media. Um, mm-hmm. And yes, there was a lot of trouble and um, you know uh, suffering, poverty, all these things in Haiti, but there was also a lot of resilience and hope, and there was a lot of things that you could do to help. Uh, and so riot was born um you know with this opportunity that we can you know connect news to action um and a lot of those things were were lessons that i learned um from my time in the peace corps you know we were getting more connected i was watching how social media was able to connect um cultures and 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 people and classes and so i always thought it was crazy that news didn't have the same sort of um interaction and a way that you could kind of get involved. Mm-hmm. And one of the ways you were doing it with Riot were VR, right? These 3D cameras that yeah. you were taking into these places and allowing people, rather than seeing you know, the one photo of a, a crying child or, so, or something like that, to really immerse themselves in, in the place and see either the, the worst of the worst actually understand what the tragedy is happening or see the opposite side of it that there's still all this good and resiliency that's happening in these communities it's it's not just this one data point there's so much more going on a hundred percent yeah i mean riot initially started with just uh, documentary films uh but the first time that i saw virtual reality which was very early before it had really come out before the headsets were available i just thought wow this is a very powerful medium to be able to transport people in inside a story. Um, and so we as a company were really the first company out there to be doing at scale nonfiction content in virtual reality. So we shot for, you know, the New York Times, a piece about the border and the Mexican border. We shot uh, for the Associated Press about the refugee crisis in, in the Calais jungle. Um, we shot for the Huffington Post on the front lines of the refugee crisis in Lesbos, um, 
as the boats were coming in. Uh, you know, we shot in Aleppo. Uh, you know, we took the cameras throughout uh, sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and I think that it was a really powerful way to, to, to transport people. So virtual reality and then augmented reality kind of became where the company moved into. And then in 2016, I sold the company to Verizon and AOL. Um, and so during that time, what I really wanted to do was scale the vision of Riot. And there was no more exciting place to do that than, than Verizon, which owned AOL, then owned Yahoo, Huffington Post, Tumblr, TechCrunch, all of those other things. Um, and that was very exciting to me. I think it was also exciting because I got, just like we were talking to, I had seen firsthand how cell phones were going to change the world and connect the mm-hmm. world. And I wanted to be a part of one of the biggest cell phone companies in the world. So I took Riot there. Uh, and the last three years, I've really built Riot inside of Verizon and built out three parts of the business uh, with Verizon, documentary films, virtual reality and augmented reality, and then branded content work. So that's really been my specialty. And um, I just left in January. So starting a new company now, uh, but also, you know, the all roads lead back to the Peace Corps in some ways. So mm-hmm. going back to my roots with, with documentary film. Mm-hmm. And with your new company, XTR, uh, all that says right now, I believe, on your Instagram are quality films. What kind of yeah. content uh, are you guys going to be creating? Yeah. Um, look, we just started last week. I, <laughs> I, I raised some money. I'm, I'm so excited um, to be able to get back to my roots. There's, this is a golden age of documentaries. It's a renaissance. Uh, there's never been, you know, I think more places that you can watch and access documentaries and share mm-hmm. documentaries, which is incredible. But also like we were talking about these, these cameras in everybody's pocket have, have, or these phones in everybody's pocket have cameras in them that are, are about as powerful as any digital video camera was in the past 10 years. And so everybody has the opportunity to tell their stories or to make films. And so there's an incredible moment that's happening where you have a democratization of distribution and a democratization of storytelling. Uh, and that's really very unique. So um, for us, we want to build a, a great documentary studio, a nonfiction television studio. Um, we've got a lot of projects that we'll be announcing later on um, uh, in the lead up to Sundance and the Oscars. But really now it's about finding great film, uh, m- t- making great films, uh, and then developing a lot of, um, you know, television and programming around that. Mm-hmm. And then I think it'd be safe to say that in every Peace Corps country right now, where there's Peace Corps volunteers currently serving, there's probably at least one volunteer with a camera who loves capturing content, photos, video, that all these volunteers have blogs, they're sharing so much content through Instagram, and they, they start falling in love with this ability to share and tell stories. But then how do they turn that into something? Peace Corps service is coming yeah. to an end and they want to continue to build those talents. I know that's something that I wanted to do. And that's one of the reasons I started this podcast was a, a creative outlet where I can escape uh, my, my federal uh, day job as a, as a government employee at EPA and, and be, be more creative and, and help tell stories do you have any words of wisdom for someone who may want to venture into that area of, of creating and, and sharing? Absolutely. I mean, um, I'll say this. There's never been a better time to do it. Um, you know, that 
that camera on the back of your phone, you can make incredible films on. You know, the first film that I was nominated for an Oscar for, Body Team 12, was shot in Liberia. We shot most of it on a GoPro and a flip phone, and we were nominated for an Oscar for it. So there's no excuse, really. Um, like, it's all about creating, creating, being passionate, trying, failing, succeeding. Um, and, and, and with all of that is practice. And with all of that, you get better and better and better and better. And then, you know, try to find some other people who love doing it too, who are passionate about doing it and who want to stay up late, um, and work on it and work on the weekends. That's how you do it. I mean, look, I think you're an incredible example of, of how you do it. You've got a job, which you need, and it's important work that you're doing and you've got to be able to have that to support you. But in the time that you're not doing that, you're creating something. Um, and that's a beautiful thing. So I would just say, um, you know, people should follow your lead and also just create and, and don't stop. And, um, you know, anybody who's in Los Angeles listening wants to come by to the XTR office and see us. Peace Corps volunteers are always welcome to come by. Well, you you may be flooded, and definitely the next time that I'm in the area, you may get me knocking at your door. Maybe I'll, I'll send you a, a forewarning uh, that I'm that I'm going to stop ah. by. Well, help help me build out the podcast studio when you come out. I, I could use your advice on it, so I uh, right. would love to see you. Awesome. Well, I've enjoyed listening to your story about your time in the Gambia, all the amazing stuff that you've done since then. If people want to learn more about you, the work you've done, or the work that you're going to be doing with XTR, where should they connect with you online? Yeah, find me on Instagram. Uh, although I'm taking a month hiatus off Instagram right now, just to kind of clear my mind before we launch the company. But I'm on, uh, I'm at Bryn Mooser, B-R-Y-N-M-O-O-S-E-R on Instagram. That's the best way. Or you can email me at Bryn at XTR.com. Awesome. Well, thank you very much for spending some time with me. I know the listeners of the podcast are really going to enjoy listening to your stories and hopefully be inspired by all the amazing stuff that you've been doing since serving in the Gambia. Well, thanks so much. It's really um, been a wonderful trip down memory lane to talk about this. And, you know, like you said, it's, it was the greatest experience in my life. I would encourage everybody to do it. Um, and I appreciate you taking the time to talk to me. And there you have it, another episode of the My Peace Corps Story podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, be sure to hit that subscribe button on whatever platform you listen to so you get a new episode every single week when I release them. If you are a current or return Peace Corps volunteer and want to uh, share your story on the podcast or maybe write something for the website, uh, share video, uh, any, any kind of content, I'm trying to build this out as a platform for volunteers to share stories that are important to them relating to their service or things that they've done after their service. So if you have something that you want to share, please reach out to me over at mypeacecorestory.com, sending me a message, an email, uh, sending me a DM on Instagram. Please reach out. Love to hear from you. Until next time, remember, every volunteer has a story. What's yours?